If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to episode number 63 of the Great Writer Share Podcast, where every week we hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join us on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. My name is Daniel Wilcox and today's date as of recording is Monday the 23rd of November and I'm going to dive straight in with my personal update. So in fiction news, The Other Side Anthology, which was the first collection of short stories from my company Devil's Rock Publishing, went live around the middle of October. It's difficult to remember the exact date because a lot happened in October. Um, but I am I'm incredibly proud with what was brought out, what was created, what the authors have included, and just how it sits on the shelf. Like the, the hardback came through, the paperback came through. It looked fantastic. I'm, yeah, I think that there's not a thing on there that I'd, I'd change at all. And I'm excited because myself and a co-conspirator are currently planning the next anthology from Devil's Rock Publishing, looking into what the theme's going to be, how it's going to work, the submission um, guidelines, the dates, all that kind of good stuff. So keep an eye out if you're a horror author or if you know someone who's a horror author who might be interested in submitting. Um, that will be over at www.devilsrockpublishing.com where you can find out all the information very, very soon. On top of that, When Winter Comes, which was my first ever serialized story, novel, uh, series, um, which I put fingers to keyboard on around March of this year, although the story stretches back to 2016 when I originally found the notes for the conception for this story. And it's it's been a journey. It's been a hell of a journey. Um, I love it when a story tells you what it needs to be, because originally I'd planned for a minimum of seven episodes, probably around nine episodes. And I just wanted to experiment. I wanted to see if I could turn a horror story into a serial. I wanted to see if I could stretch the form, find a way to manage sort of shorter releases while I'm, you know, doing other work and getting involved with other projects. And the the serial ended up being six episodes, which totals in at about 130,000 words. So it's quite a beefy novel um, once it's all collected together. And it is the only season that's going to come out in this story. The story is capped off. It rounds off. It's exactly what it needs to be, which kind of brings me back to the reason i started in the first place which is that horrors are very difficult to serialize or put into a series because everyone dies at the end but ultimately the the book came out better than i planned that i than i ever thought i could um i've had roaring feedback from anyone who's read through the entire series i'm really happy with how the end rounded off and the next steps for that are for me i've got a piece of cover art that is basically going to be a box set version of the book and in a few months' time, um, I'm basically going to be re-editing. I'm going to be looking through uh, doing audiobook and all that stuff and doing a big launch of the collection as a sort of collected, serialised novel. 
Um, I'm very much looking forward to having that on my, my my bookshelf. Considering as well that the art is beautiful and it's nothing that I'm going to be showing the world anytime soon, but it is. Oh, I'm I'm very 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 happy with what the cover artist came back with. Um, so yeah, all that to look forward to. And which that that leaves me in a bit of a quiet slump at the minute because. Uh, you know, Christmas is coming up this time next week. I will be moving house. So I'm trying to give myself deliberately less to do. Um, I've got sort of ghostwriting to do. I've got other projects I'm currently working on. So for me, I'm in a bit of a fiction slump. But what I have done to get me through this quieter time, I guess, is I've bought a piece of cover art that I just fell in love with instantly. And I am currently percolating on a novella that is going to represent this story that I'm going to put together. And I have no real expectations for this one, which is different because... You know, I've spent the last couple of years sort of chasing all as, as much commercial success as I can in order to sort of pay bills and bring in all the income and stuff. But this book, I am going back to my roots. I'm going to just tell the story that I want to tell. No expectation. No, no. <laughs> this might be a bad idea. We'll see. No sort of a market view. It's it's going to be my book, my idea. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I do love it when you find a piece of art that grabs you and tries to make you tell its story. So that will be to come. Um, I'll, I'm sure I'll share more updates on that as it comes in the future. In non-fiction news, I've been working very, very hard over the past few weeks, few months um, in order to maximise the offering that I'm providing in terms of services for authors. So by the time this episode airs, hopefully all of my information will be over at danielwilcox.com. If not, it'll be at danielwilcox.me. Soon to transfer over to the .com. Longer story. Uh, listen to the Next Level Authors latest episode to understand my rationale behind that. Long story short... Over at danielwilcox.com, there will be information there about book coaching, which I am or I will soon be offering to authors. Book coaching for people who haven't listened to the Jenny Nash episode of The Great Writer's Share is essentially a sort of extended program in which you work directly with someone who has been in the author game for a while and you have weekly sort of meetings and calls and deadlines and tasks and it's sort of an accelerated program to help you uh, move forward with your writing so it's a good way to practice your craft just get into the biz particularly if you're going to be an indie author and uh, i do currently have a waiting list over at danielwilcox.com so by all means if you're interested in that find out more information check it out i am also offering smaller services one of those being a short story studio edit in which i take short stories and i edit them for people as someone who is uh, a co-founder of the other stories podcast and definitely played a part in sort of the rising success of that show to its 6 million plus downloads. Um, I feel like I'm fairly qualified to know what makes a good short story. So if you want to check that out, that's also at danielwilcox.com. And I will soon be having information on a public boot camp, which for people who haven't listened to the last few months of the show, I did offer and currently I'm in the throes of a boot camp that I'm running with 17, 18, 18 authors in which I am providing Zoom, Zoom sprints, we're doing daily motivational messages, we've got a Facebook community. And the idea of that is basically to build this community for everyone to reach the end of NaNoWriMo and hit the 50,000 word target for everyone that just wants to get to that point. But I am currently reviewing and looking at a way in which I can bring bootcamp uh, as a more regular feature to people. So if people are tired of writing alone and you feel like you want to be a part of something with some people and sort of get out of that little bubble of loneliness, which I know that is definitely there in the beginning when you start writing, then uh, keep an eye out for more information on that because that will be coming pretty soon. And the last thing to note for me, my productivity book is still under works. It's stretching and becoming probably one of the most researched books I've ever worked on. I am incredibly excited at what it will be, but it definitely needs a lot more work. So uh, that's that's all I can update you on at the minute is is much, much heavier research. I've got a direction. I know where I'm going, but it's just it's just making it happen. So 
keep an eye out for that. Today's guest is someone who I am incredibly excited to have interviewed, and it is the wonderful Josh Malaman. For people who are unfamiliar with Josh Malaman and his work, he is the author of the novels Bird Box and Mallory, as well as a whole slew of others. Bird Box has been translated into a Netflix blockbuster with Sandra Bullock, with John Malkovich, with Sarah Paulson, and it was a hit success. I've read the book. It's fantastic. I've read Mallory. It's also fantastic. I've seen the film. It was also fantastic. And I'm a big fan of Josh and uh, a lot of what he does. So I really, really enjoyed having the chance to sit down with him and we discussed some things that I think are a bit more uh, non-conventional because I know that Josh has been on a lot of interviews talking about how Bird Box works, how Mallory came about, all these kind of background information about his writing journey. And one thing I hadn't really seen was us take the angle of uh, the artist and his life as as a writer, as a musician. He is also one of the uh, lead singers of The High Strung, which is uh, a very, very popular band. And yeah, we we went all over the globe on this. And it's it's an interview that might actually be one of my favorite interviews I've ever I've ever given it's one of the my favorite interviews that I've ever sort of been on the other side of uh, I'm very very thankful Josh if you listen to this awesome thanks for thanks for coming on we can definitely do this again sometime but yeah we cover what it is to be an artist we cover the power of writing the end on your first draft we cover what it means to be a prolific and we do go a little bit at the end into sort of touching on some of the Mallory and Bird Box stuff so by all means stick around it's going to be a very meaty episode no new patrons this week, but for anyone who wants to get more value from the show and be able to ask any upcoming guests any of your questions, as well as getting early access to episodes without ads and into our Slack group, then head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share, where you can get more from the show for as little as just $1 a month. And that's patreon.com forward slash great writer share. Thank you to everyone who answered our question of the week. And our question of the week this week was, do you consider yourself an artist? And Laura Kay started kicking us off in true Laura style by saying, actually, I consider myself more of a god, creating life, destroying it, playing with my creations to entertain myself, which I loved. And yes, that's what we do as fiction authors. Holly Line, who says, I definitely consider myself an artist. I have other creative outlets and skills as well as writing. I studied art at A-level. I sing, play a little of several instruments. I've done drama and film making. I draw, do hand lettering, and I get to write for a career definitely an artist in that sense. Yanni says, I would consider myself an artist like Holly between writing and my artwork. I'm a creative by nature. Meg says, I guess I do consider myself an artist, but I prefer the term creative because that seems to better express the fluid and organic nature of this career slash lifestyle for me. Creativity is in every breath I take. Art is in everything I perceive. A story is waiting in all things to be written, performed, painted, experienced. It is a true honour that I have been able to forge a career telling stories through my writing, art and creative endeavours. Absolutely love that. I couldn't, I could not agree more. Natal Roberts says, definitely all creation is art. To me, an artist is a person using whatever their medium is to express their interpretation of what they think, see, hear or feel. I work with text because that's my happy place. What I do on the surface is write pulp fiction. Scratch that and I find my examination of the human condition writhing beneath. Why the human condition is a massive writhing tentacles in my mind, I don't know. <laughs> Ritu and Julie both say, hell yes. Jasmine Plate says, it took me a while before I could stop focusing on perfection. I always used to believe I wasn't skilled enough to call myself an artist, even though I was always creating in one way or another. But yes, I am most definitely an artist, flawed and proud. And finally, Andy Conduit-Turner, who was our guest on the show a couple of weeks ago. Check that episode out. In the strictest sense, I'd agree I am, but with a little asterisk and a note explaining not like in a visual creation sense. 
So thank you everyone for answering this week's question. To answer next week's question, head on over to the Facebook group or join us on Patreon and get involved there. But now, without any further ado, let's dive into the interview with the one, the only, the global best-selling smash sensation, Josh friggin' Malaman. Josh Malaman is a New York Times best-selling author and also one of two singer-songwriters for the rock band The High Strung, whose song The Luck You Got can be heard as the theme song to the Showtime show Shameless. His critically acclaimed novel, Bird Box, has been adapted into a Netflix feature film starring Sandra Bullock, John Malkovich, and Sarah Paulson, and was also nominated for the Stoker Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the James Herbert Award. The sequel novel, Mallory, was released earlier this year to roaring success, and his books Black Mad Wheel and Goblin have also been nominated for Stoker Awards. Joshua Malaman, welcome to the show. Hello, that intro was amazing for me. I was like, it was like a reminder for me. I was like, oh yeah, wait. Yeah, you, you do have a best-selling novel, and oh my God, you do have a movie made. Yeah, that was kind of, that was nice. It's like, got to be, oh. yeah, it's, it's got to be something that's so, I don't know, I'm trying to put myself in that position, because obviously the, you, you do have a lot of credits behind your name, like we listed the awards there, obviously you've had things uh, translated into film, you kind of, you've got the band going as well, there's so much going on, and uh, I think the beginning of how I want this interview to start is very, very much digging into what the definition of an artist is, because obviously you've got the band, You've got the, the books, you've got the sort of film adaptations. So let me ask you, what does it mean to you to be an artist in today's world? Wow, uh, I have never it's been a big asked question that. to start with, I know. Uh, but my, one of my favorites, um, I've never been asked it, but one of my favorite subjects to discuss. The way I see it is, if you want to be an artist, you have to finish works of art. And this, this is something that I came to uh, young enough where it was frustrating because I wasn't finishing. I was writing songs and that, that, that definitely got me through it this period, but I wasn't finishing the novels that I was starting. So between the ages of like 19 to 29, I tried my hand at like four novels and failed. I put, I'm putting quotes around failed because all I really mean by failed is I didn't finish them. I didn't care if they were um, right or wrong or good or bad or long or short, whatever it was, I just didn't finish one and somewhere in there I started thinking if you're going to be an author you have to actually write a book buddy you know and it was a, it was a kind of a daunting realization you're writing songs okay this is good but that translates to me that translates immediately over to what is an artist because and I'm not even just talking about like the eye of the beholder or um everything's objective but there really is no right or wrong to it right and if you look on the spectrum uh, let's say you're let's say you're setting out to write a novel and you're like oh am I good enough okay and if you check out like the spectrum of what you've read what you've experienced and you go from like the absolute height the pinnacle to the worst and the, there's a thousands of books between I think it's safe to say that you feel like you would fit somewhere on that spectrum so it would be incredible if you um, got beyond the the pinnacle of what you think that is and it would be maybe even more incredible if you fell below what you consider to be <laughs> the worst book you've ever read. So to me, you take all those people as artists, you take all those people as serious, they wrote novels, this guy's an author, this girl's a, a filmmaker, whatever it is. And so to me, then it literally just comes down to just writing it, just finishing one, just making a movie, just making an album, whatever it is. So as simple as that answer, and as long as that answer is, it really just comes down to an artist is so is someone who finishes works of art. 
I love that so much. And that resonates a lot because a lot of the authors that I speak to, nine times out of 10, they're people that have tried in the past, but never quite reached the end. And one thing that I preach to a lot of people is if you're looking to get into this kind of profession, there is nothing more powerful than writing the end on the first draft and knowing that you can finish because that is such a, a huge hurdle for people to even get to. The idea of writing however many pages of a work and hitting the end is just phenomenal. And for me, I don't really care what happens after that. I can I can put everything, every part of my journey down to me writing the end on that first that first novel. Could not agree more. So at the end of those four or end of those 10 years and the four failed novels. I had some crazy idea that I was going to write two at once because <laughs> I figured, and one was a very lofty um, idea, which actually sounds appealing to me again now, but it hasn't for a long time. And then the second idea was sort of this real psychosexual um, horror novel, real fast paced thing. And I sat down to, you know, the idea was real fast. The idea was you start one, if you get stuck in it, you turn to the other one. If you get stuck there, we turn back. So we can use, instead of getting stuck and then no, 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 never come <laughs> back to it, they, we, I can use these two ideas for each other, against each other, for each other. So I made it like two, literally two pages into the loftier idea. And I was like, ah, oh, shoot, I don't know what's going on. And I transferred over to the, to the, to the dirty one and just exploded through it like, like, something like what was it 91,000 words in 28 days wow um all handwritten and this was all in a an all-night coffee shop um in outside of Detroit and I would go at midnight and write till about 4 a.m it was winter it was December of um uh 2004 or something and I'll never forget when getting to a spot where I was like wait a minute I know how this ends and I'm near that spot. Like I was on page like 270 or something. And I had made it to 300 in one of the failed novels. Hmm. And I'm like, but wait a minute, I actually know that this stops at this scene that's coming up. Like, and it's exactly what you're saying. The feeling was indescribable. I've never felt something like it, not even, you know, well, I mean, it's just different, but seeing Sandra Bullock as Mallory was a whole different kind of like, <laughs> But like that feeling of like, there's just nothing like it. And it's exactly what you said. You don't even, part of you doesn't even really give a shit what happens after that. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Like, yes, I can make this better now. And that, that was one of the beauties of handwriting it is that it forced a typed out rewrite. Because if you're going to enter it, you're not just going to enter it verbatim. You're going to make changes, right? So it forced a rewrite. But so it was like, okay, I'll make this better. Where's it going to get published? What do you mean? Who cares if it even gets published? Let's do another one and another one. And so my early run with all of this before Bird Box got um, picked up was, and Bird Box is included in this run, some nine, 10 novels or something, like when I met my agent and all that, that I never once tried to shop, never, ne did, uh, I guess I rewrote Wendy because it was handwritten, like I said, whatever. Um, but so the point is like, there was never a sense of what do I do with these? Now, a couple of things to keep in mind. Um, at the time I was in a rock band, I still am. And we were playing our shows or playing our songs every night in a different city, right? So there's some artistic gratification there. Like we were, um, I, I didn't have to find that in the books that I was writing. And we weren't making money in the band. We started to maybe at the very end in a, in a, in a better way, but not like, you know, not where we're like, oh, we're retired or, you know, I mean, it was, I just, for some reason, I never saw the books with this urgency, with dollar signs in my eyes, these kind of things. 
it just seemed like them being finished was enough. And now I have in the crate behind you, behind the screen, um, <laughs> there's 33 rough drafts in there of novels. Nine wow. of them are out in the world. Well, yeah, nine of them are out in the world. And I still feel the same way right now, despite Mallory going through rewrites and movie for Bird Box and movie for Our House of the Head. And I still feel like those 33 novels, that, that's, that's it right there. That's the stuff. And it's the same thing that you were saying, like you almost don't even care what, you do care, you want them to do well. And I couldn't, believe me, I could not be more grateful than I am for every single thing happening with all this. But ultimately that's the stuff. Mm. There's yeah. so much, there's so much I really want to dig into. And I'm, I'm conscious, obviously, like time restraints and stuff. But like, I think there's such a, there seems to be such a purity around you and your process. I mean, to have a number of novels written that obviously, I think everyone who writes a book wants some kind of success in some way and to obviously be picked up. But like you say, you had your gratification artistically with, with your band. So yeah. what was it specifically that, that dragged you into writing, even though you were expressing yourself in, in other ways? So me and the, um, other songwriter, Mark. So Mark Owen and I are the two songwriters in the High Strong. And we, we were always talking about, we want to write. And we wrote, some, we got found love with songwriting together. We, we learned how to play guitars together, all this stuff. But all the while we were talking about how we wanted to write books, constantly talking about it. And even tried experiments to force ourselves to where we would <clears throat> come home from work on a Friday. We lived together. Lock the door and you weren't allowed to leave until uh, Monday with a completed story. Like you Amazing. literally were not allowed to leave the apartment. <laughs> Sorry, like stuff like that. So we you would bring home like, f like sandwiches and whiskey, you know, and you're like, oh, we're not leaving, you know. <laughs> but I was writing <clears throat> like poems, which and that's really a, a loose word for what they, I mean, whatever, those, those are embarrassing, but like emo <laughs> poems and short stories trying to before writing songs. So even like from the word go, it's always been like, trying to write in some fashion or another. But then it was really when I met Mark and when we started writing songs together and then you start putting out albums, right? That you start to see like, if we can put out an album, why can't this novel idea be realistic? Why can't this happen? And I mean, I remember reading that Ken Kesey had written all of Cuckoo's Nest. And then when he was done, he was like, oh man, what if this was told from the from Chief's perspective instead? And then he started over and wrote it again. And I thought when I read that, it sounded like someone said they ran five marathons in a row. Like I couldn't <laughs> comprehend what I had just read. I'm like, what do you mean? He wrote a whole novel and then wrote it again from a, no, I couldn't grasp it. And then with Bird Box, there were, you know, it gets picked up. Uh, the rough draft was really a wild, a wild incarnation of that book. But anyway, um, it gets picked up and there were enough notes um, that had to do with, the rough draft had like 14 housemates and the final book had like seven. There were enough notes that suggested either you remove characters and pretend this other character set himself, or you just write this stuff from scratch and you know how it is. So I did the same exact thing. Bird Box got picked up and I saw the notes that they had and just really in terms of limiting the characters. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna write it again. I'm not gonna sit here and try to squeeze every chapter to like, you know, change the names and change it a little. Does that sound like, let's just try it again. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me of how, well, I guess I would call it, um, you're in writing shape, right? So if you're not finishing novels, if you're not writing regularly, the idea, the concept of writing the same novel twice 
is bonkers. Yes. But if you are, and if you're doing it every day and you're working on it and you're rewriting and you're working on another idea, it's it's not all of a sudden. So that ha- that's another that's another thing because I feel like we, we're sort of now satellite um, satelliting um, what makes an artist, right? Mm-hmm. And there is and there is being in art an artist like shape for it. Well, you that that can mean that you get wasted every night and paint, you know, <laughs> every night or whatever. That, that, you know, it's not the same as being on the treadmill. But there is a certain like artistic muscle that has to be in shape or something as well. Absolutely. I will also say, just for listeners, if you do hear some thumping in the background, it's my next door neighbors, and I'm not Edgar Allan Poeing and having someone just dead beneath, just a heart beating beneath my floorboards. Like, I was gonna ask, I was gonna be like, hmm, hmm there's someone that shut up for the. Did you move the camera to the floorboards? Yes, and carpeted over. <laughs> I'll move the camera. I'll show people just to just to be sure. Um, but obviously, you mentioned there about the the first draft of of Bird Box, and from what I've read, and if this is accurate. That was a whirlwind 26 day sprint, similarly to your experiment with Wendy in which that was handwritten and that was just in one go. Bird Box was 26 days, mostly italics, barely any dialogue tags and with five flinches finches flying above your head. You seem to have this knack for creating unique situations in which to write those first drafts. Is that something that you deliberately set up or does it just kind of happen in that way for you? I have never thought about that before. And the first thing that comes to mind is Carpenter's Farm was written live on at the beginning of this pandemic. I don't know if you know of that one. I, I, I posted it to the website in installments. Um, that would be a real example of what you just asked, like like making a <laughs> like the, the writing of the rough draft being in extraordinary <laughs> circumstances. Believe you me, there are easier things than writing a novel live. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. but but um, but yeah, I do feel like that. Like Goblin had had a. Had that to it, Unburied Carol was a super few. I wrote Unburied Carol was the fastest I've ever written a novel. And it, it is, it's my favorite one, um, which that always sounds weird when an author says that, but I don't care. It is my favorite one. <laughs> it, it was, I think I wrote Unburied Carol in 15 days. And wow. the rough draft was like almost 90. It was like 5,300 words a day from day one. I mean, from day one, like, boom, usually it's like, Day one's like 500, 1,000. You're like, all right, I introduced Jonathan or something. And then day two, you're like, okay, now he has brown hair. And <laughs> you're like starting to build up, you know? And then you're rolling by the end. I'm very careful from the, from the minute the gate opened was just an explosion. Mm. So I, I, I do, and again, this, this all keeps circling the first question, which I love. Um, because if we are saying that the rough draft is what matters, right? Or, or, or the finishing of the rough draft, putting the end on the book, right? Well, shouldn't that experience, or, or isn't it nice if that experience is joyful? Isn't it nice if that experience is a rush? If, if it's out of body, if it's transcendent, if you're like into it, you know, like you're like jamming or something, like stone without being stone. I can't imagine writing a book stone, by the way, that would be the worst thing. <laughs> but, but like, so like, those and that says something too like i'm saying you the good stuff's in that that trunk right there this huge crate it also is saying like the good experiences of like you're not caring about oh how right or not you're just like in this world and you're going for it so i do think i i would say this it's not intentional that the rough drafts have become sort of extraordinary experiences for me but it's also no secret to me that or it's no surprised to me that they have been because to me that's the most like joyful moment of the process yeah have any of your works been written over a longer period and with a bit more deliberation or are they all these kind of explosions of energy and an idea 
so there was two. One is kind of like two explosions because I wrote, um, it's the two longest ones I've written. So one is called Bring Me the Map. That one I wrote 80,000 fairly steadily. And then I was, I ran out of gas. Mm. And a year later, I wrote the other, I wrote another 80,000, the second half of it. And I had never done that before where I took a break between, I wrote other stuff between, but I was like, all right, now it's time to go finish Bring Me the Map and did another 80,000. But the real one, the one time that I was steady about it, and I have the book here and I almost want to show you, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I do want to show you because I, even though nobody can see this, I feel like you have to. So this is called, I'm holding up a giant stack of paper, everyone. Wow, that, I mean, giant stack indeed, yes. It's called Ghoul in the Cape. That is a, Beasts. Wow. Is that, is that like size 25 font? <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's good. No, it's 1100 pages. And I went into it knowing that it was going to be a giant. And so I said to myself, it was almost like counterintuitive or something, but I said to myself, okay, look, typically when you get rolling, you're doing at the least 2,500, 3,000 a day. And, and at the most like Carol, like 5,300 a day. But with this one, I think if you're going to get through this one, I think you got to do like a thousand a day. And spend a year on this yeah you know it's gonna be like it is it's over three hundred thousand, and i think that there was something that was like that sounds counterintuitive oh you're gonna write like your longest book ever you're gonna take your time and write it slower well the reason why is I, I just can't imagine maintaining that bird box or carol pace for 1100 pages mm. and it freaking worked like the months are passing and the numbers start you know Three months pass and you're at 90,000. You're like, I'm almost like a third of the way through this story. A couple more months, you're about halfway. You're like, this is freaking working. And so that's the one time that I took it in a steady, like intentionally, hey man, like don't, don't overextend yourself. And not to use force analogies or whatever, but in the same way, if you're running every day, if you run 10 miles one day, you may not run the next day, right? Yes. And then if you don't run the next day, maybe you won't run the next day. So I'd rather have ran that one mile every day. And that's what Google and the Cape was. Mm. And that's such useful advice because a lot of my uh, listeners are people who are first time authors who are struggling to get those words down and to to even think about writing something so large um, seems impossible. But if you can if you can nail just a thousand words a day or even just 500 words a day and chip away at it constantly, then that's when you really build up that that body of work that you can then start to put out there. And obviously, even though you, you've hit success with a lot of what you're doing and you're, you're prolifically writing all these books, you're still using that method to write these much, much larger works, which I find endlessly fascinating. Yeah. So, OK, think about what you just said, like 500 words a day. It almost sounds like. If you're rolling, 500 words, could, like literally could be like 15, 20 minutes, or mm. it could take time, depends on how serious you are about those words and how, how how likely they are to remain, right? But the point is like, if you only did 500 a day, so okay, Google in the Cape is 1,000, that's 300,000. So let's say you did half that, 500 a day. I mean, in a year's time, by the way, less than, uh, it would be 10 months time, you would end up with like, like 550 page rough draft. And like, so I always think about that. I'm like, time is going to pass either way. Yes. Why not market with these sessions, these daily sessions? And when you turn around in 10 months, let's say, to the person starting today, I mean, can you, for doing almost nothing different, you write 500 words a day and you have 550 pages? And that all sounds a little clinical. That all sounds a little um, uh, strategic. Formulaic. Yeah, yeah. And then like, and I'm like, 
it, that's not where I'm coming from. It's really not. But sometimes numbers can help mm-hmm. when you when you're like, because a book just can sound so daunting, like it used to to me, like Kesey's thing, like it can sound so, oh my god, three hundred pages. But you just do this little bit. I mean, and then here we are. Google in the Cape is a mammoth thing that is, by the way, uh, a special edition. This this hasn't been announced anywhere yet. A special edition of this book is coming out. Um, I don't know when. I have to rewrite this stack for him. <laughs> um, that's A4 pages I'll add as well. When we said it's 1,100 pages, that's A4 pages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he he's putting out like the full 1,000 page like edition and everything. And it'll be like a 1,000 of them made or something. And that's probably coming out like in a year and a half or something. But I got, I got to still rewrite it for him. But I had a long discussion. And this is an interesting thing for writers to hear too, that there are different kinds of rewrites depending on the book itself. And this is the same with music. I like, and me and the publisher both like that Ghoul in the Cape is loose, that it's, that it meanders, that it has, that, that it breathes, that, you know, Bird Box is a bullet yes. story. Like a, they can't like, boom, like everything is united, one note story. That This one's not like that. So with Bird Box, the rewrite could in effect take longer than like an, a thousand page book that you're mostly just, all right, okay, uh, he used to be called John, now you're calling him Jim, that's a, <laughs> bad, you know, like a lot of that kind of stuff happens. Like, wait, you haven't mentioned his sister in like 500 pages, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's gonna be like a gentle sort of a just read through, make sure it's all together. Whereas the rewrite of the newest book uh, I wrote for Del Rey, that one will be like a detailed every every kind of beat thing. And that's interesting too. Like not all, not all rewrites are, uh, are the same. If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. Hmm. And all of this links me very, very nicely to another point that I wanted to hit, which I love it when this happens in an interview and you circle around something that's going to come up anyway. Um, but if you'll indulge me for a minute while I read some of your words back at you, because uh, as I said, just before we started recording, I've recently finished uh, Mallory, which was a fantastic follow up to Bird Box, which um, I will also add right now that I think Bird Box was the first book in a long time, which refueled my my love of reading. And I read it back in it was 2018, so obviously a few years after it was published, but I'd seen it floating around a lot, and it was one of those I kept seeing pop up, and then it became part of a reader's group that I'm involved in. And wow. it was one book that I, I blitzed through in two days while I was traveling around to see friends in sort of Manchester and other places, and I, I just couldn't put it down. And that hasn't happened to me in quite a few years. And it's not because other books are, are terrible, not at all. Like, I've enjoyed books that I've read, but it's been a while since one has really sort of, like, just grabbed me and pulled me in. So having recently read Mallory and seeing that you've managed to deliver that twice I think number one that's a, a, a sensational thing so I I highly applaud you on on everything you've done there man thank you um I thank you so much for for all that I um real fast I wanted to say but about that like you know at first talking to Del Rey and my agent about doing Mallory um and we can get to that deeper if you want later or mm. something but I 
when I sat down to write it, I was like, okay, here we go. And the minute it started, it was like, oh, I, like any pressure or anything was just gone. Mm. It was like, I'm just happy to be with Mallory again. Like, there's just some characters that come around, I think, for authors that, how do you explain it? Like, there's no, or remember, she would be like this, or she would, yes. you know, she would, it's just like, naturally, this, I, I know her. I got her. I got her. I know her. Yeah. It's gonna be such a nice feeling. And uh, I definitely want to get to some of that stuff, but I will say for listeners, if we don't get more to some of the, the Bird Box Mallory stuff, um, you did do a fantastic interview on the This Is Horror podcast and Michael David Wilson is a good friend of ours and he was on the show recently. So I'll definitely link to, I think you did three episodes sort of in, in sequence that you put up there. So if people wanna yeah. find out more about that, it's definitely in there, I'll link to that. Um, I love you guys. No worries. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at the end of Mallory, you, you wrote a little afterward and as I was reading through it, there was some part that really, really pulled me in. And I'm, I'll, I'll read this full paragraph and then we can kind of discuss, but it is quite long. So it's, like I say, please do indulge me. What the prolific understands deeply is that you can start anywhere in a prolifics catalog and work your way in either direction from there. What the prolific cherishes about all things is not the singular work of art, but the canon, the oeuvre, the arc of a creative mind unable to stop itself, the waves created by endless ideas. Have I mentioned that the prolific believes anything he or she does at any time is a snapshot of the whole? That to wait years between projects is akin to having misplaced a thousand photographs from an era that, in hindsight, was much cooler than it felt at the time. Now, for me, that clicked on so many levels because I'm known more within the indie community as someone that writes very, very fast. So I, I put out a lot of product in, in different places. And for me, I was getting to a position in which well, number one, I do want to slow down a little bit and focus more sort of and, and go a bit more deeper into projects because I feel like personally I'm writing a bit too fast, but that's a whole different conversation. But to read something like this and to know that there are other people out there that feel that sense of urgency to create something that captures a moment in time and doesn't feel the pressure of a book needing to be a, a perfect um, monument of, of who a person is, that it's, it's shifting, it's changing, it's morphing as time goes by. Um, I mean... I, I know that when I interviewed Jonathan Jazz, he came, he, he mentioned a few times about the the art of the prolific, but talk to us a little bit more about that idea and how you feel about that, because it's something I've never seen so um, succinctly put and so so eloquently put as as you have. Man, um, I- We're getting deep here. <laughs> oh yeah, no, this is, again, these are like my favorite subjects. So I have a friends, friends, numerous friends that have book ideas and then, I see them getting stuck and I keep, you know, I keep going back to the moment I finished a first book, which was, like I said, there was the, there was the lofty idea that I, that I was like, this is the one I'm trying to write. And then the crazy horror story that I was like, this will help me write that one essentially. Left the lofty one behind and went nuts into this one. And, and I see friends that are stuck on their first novel and I start to feel like I have a feeling that you think that that novel has to represent you in full. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's going on here. Every character, every street name has to represent you in full. And what you don't realize, and you can't know if you're prolific or not until book two, right? I mean, you can't, if you only wrote one, you don't know until you write that second one, like the, what you're capable of in that way, right? But the minute you do have that second book, then you start to realize, okay, Wendy was more about um, sexuality. Goblin was more about um, like, a, like a character, like sketches or whatever. And that was the second book I wrote, Goblin. The Wolverine line, um, oh, I love that book. That's the third book I wrote. The Wolverine line was uh, just a spiral into um, a guy that was just 
whatever, like horribly afraid of an experience that happened to him. And so, so it was like all these different things already in the first three books. And I started to realize that any spotlight on what I was trying to, uh, or what I'm trying to say or represent or whatever is already divvied up now amongst three books. So to understand, you know, where he or she is coming from, and in this case, me, you, Wendy wouldn't represent me in full, neither would Bird Box. In fact, it's, sometimes it's incredible to me that Bird Box is the breakthrough one because it's sort of the flattest one. It's like the straightest one. Mm-hmm. And I'm like a super scatterbrained, like, like Carol is much more like my personality, like, 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 going from like vignette scene to scene, like multiple characters and bizarre setting and bizarre circumstances. But so, okay, now if you put Bird Box and Carol next to each other, someone might not even, without my name on them, I don't think somebody would recognize those as the same author. I don't think so. And so, and I think you could even do that with inspection. And then it'd be like, I have no, like these are three different people. But what that means to me is that a single work of art isn't what represents you it's the canon that you just uh, read. And then, but the beauty of that is the second you embrace that and the second you really live by that, well then, then shit, man, anything goes. Like, because now you're saying you could literally write a novel where not a single character agrees with any way you see the world at all. Like you don't have to, it's almost like, okay, so there's that element, the dispersed spotlight, right? Or numerous spotlights or whatever it is but removing the spotlight from one work of art. But then there's also like the sense that like the novel, unlike a rock band, there's nowhere to hide, okay? So, so my friend who's worried about representing himself in full in a novel, well, guess what? You're going to, like, you can't hide in a novel anyway. Like if you and I were given the same exact scenario, um, literally the sun comes up, uh, Jonathan wakes up, he goes to the bathroom, he goes downstairs, just already how you tell that and I tell that, like we're worlds apart already, and the same exact moment happened. There's just no hiding it. And you, and, and, and if you, even to the point where if you did write a novel that was, um, uh, what's the right word, unlike yourself or unlike your worldviews, that would probably be understood by someone reading it that either this was a farce or sarcastic or irony or something would be understood there because the real you is impossible to hide in a novel. And so that might sound like scary to someone, but what it should do is lift the pressure of feeling like you have to figure out a way to express yourself. By writing at all, you are expressing yourself. I remember before a show that the High Strung had in Chicago, there was a, a poet named Fax Douglas who liked to read his poems on stage before the band would play. And he's legendary around Chicago. He would do this for, uh, what do they call Wilco and other bands. And, and he did it for the High Strung. And I remember talking to Fax and I was like, I don't think I, had I written? Yeah, I had already written a couple books by then. And I was like, I wanna write the great, like optimistic, like the optimist novel that, that years from now, if somebody was like, oh, you, you need to read Mallerman's blah, blah, blah. If you're, if you're wondering how to, you know, get through this moment or something. And Fax turned to me and he goes, isn't the act of writing at all optimistic? And I was like, yeah, shit, you're right, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, because doesn't it imply that it matters? And doesn't it imply that someone might read it? And doesn't it imply that there's meaning? And I'm like, yeah, thank you. Now I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing and let let that all work itself out. So yes, 100%. um, 
I think that the ultimate beauty of the prolific is it ends up becoming the canon, the quilt, the body of work ends up representing you rather than just Bird Box, just Andrea Carroll. Hmm. One thing that I found in terms of sort of researching you and just in previous conversations I've had with other writers is your name is often uh, brought up into conversation as a very positive influence and someone who manages to remain humble despite obviously this this global success that you've had with with your films, with your books and everything else. Um, I, the question I want to ask is kind of two part. Number one, how do you stay so humble once you have received this kind of attention in this industry? And number two, you seem to be a very active force in terms of holding a hand back to help people behind you on the journey come up as well. So what, what does that look like for you? How, how, how do you think about helping the others behind you? And how do you manage to sort of stay so, so grounded and humble? Man, those, th- those are hard ones to, to dissect myself. I feel like one answer I have is, is, is that... Um, is the same way that you're approaching it too, where if it's all, if you're all coming from uh, a place of joy and love for writing and for books, then I mean, like if you, if you it, it almost comes down to again, that the real meat of the matter is in the rough draft. So anything that happens beyond that is like, oh my God, this is wonderful, this kind of thing. But I think I do wonder though, if I was 20 years old, when Bird Box comes out and a movie is made and it's a hit, what would I what would I be like by 23, 24? I don't know. I can't say for sure that I would be this, you know, I would probably walk around like I fucking own the city or something. <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like, yeah, everything I write is gonna be turned into like Sandra Bullock's and stuff and everything. <laughs> like I probably wouldn't, I probably would have no real concept. I mean, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit, but because I do think that most people I've met are coming from the right place, especially like authors, right? I mean, how many authors have you really met where they're like, my goal is to be world famous or my goal is to make a million dollars, you know? And while we all want these things to happen, and it seems like that kind of attitude can really help someone in say sports, you know? Mm. They give them some sort of like energized edge or something like some chip on your shoulder or something like that. But I kind of have a rule, no V's in art, no validation. Oh, oh, meaning by um, success. So mm. Bird Box doing well should not validate the other books or, or me or some career, should not um, uh, be a victory. The writing in itself is the victory. Um, should not, um, um, oh, nothing vengeful. If anybody ever said like something about you and you're like, well, now what do you think, motherfucker? You know, like, no, 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 no. Hold that back. I've met those people. Yeah, right. And but some of the, and then there's one more, but I can't remember the fourth V right now. It, it's in the newest book that I wrote, the four Vs. Um, but but the point is like, I, I'm very aware at 40, like, like or 40 something, like be like, you know, let's not look at the success of Bird Box as it means, you know, um uh, there's no spite in that there's no bad feeling you're not you're not wishing you know you're not glad that this happened that someone else sees you you know succeed like no 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 the joy everything is in that rough draft anything that happens on top of that just be grateful for literally everything that happens on top of that rough draft just be grateful for and so if that sounds humble then i guess i am and in terms of um so I don't mean because I have a feeling you don't think this way either, but I don't. I just don't see it as 
reaching behind or down to like help someone, that kind of thing. And like, I see sometimes online, someone will say, oh, I only, I only punch up or I'll never punch down. <laughs> And I'm like, what, what the fuck is up and down anyway, man? Mm. Like what? Because this guy sold more books than you or this guy sold less or whatever. The guy, Dean Koontz might be the coolest, most sensitive, nicest dude in the world. I have no idea. You know, <laughs> if, if I punched up at Dean Koontz, is it, oh, that's okay. And then for all I know, he could send him into a mental spiral for six weeks. <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Whereas someone else that I was like, I'm not going to punch down or y'all never mm. punch down. This guy could be the biggest turd burglar in the world. So I don't know. So I don't, I just don't see it as behind, forward, up, down, like to begin with. I just don't. Sometimes I do worry because I see like, um, what's the right phrase? I do see like people on Twitter that, and, and online that sort of present themselves as a little more aloof, mm. you know, certain like writers, not, not distance from other writers, but just, they just seem a little more aloof or a little more, I don't know how to explain it. Whereas I feel like on, on, on online, I'm just like exactly like I'm talking to you right now. Yeah. Sometimes I worry like, is that, you know, am I going to ruin any chance of mystique or was that already like ruined years ago? <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely comes across. There's definitely transparency when it comes to just the things that I've read about you, obviously other podcasts that I've listened to speaking to you now. Um, it's all sort of one just authentic experience. Right. We, we would be doing a bit of a disservice if we don't touch on Bird Box and Mallory. And uh, I guess one question that I have from my side is obviously Bird Box was originally published, if my facts are correct, in 2014. The movie with Sandra Bullock, which, by the way, was fantastic, uh, came out in 2018, and Mallory has come out this year. How have you kept the momentum flowing between these different projects as they go on? Because obviously it's one, overall, it's one large story, and people are still invested, and they love it, and they love what you're bringing. Are you actively doing anything from your side to keep that momentum going? You mean to keep the momentum? of the Bird Box world, the Bird Box story, or do you mean uh, writing in general? You mean um, the bird box story, right? Yeah, more than the story, yeah. Yeah, like like that world or whatever. Yes. Um, dude, to make matters even weirder, the rough draft was written in 06. So the real question <laughs> is like, how the hell <laughs> are, like, have you, because to me, and I, I'll say this a million times, they're all the same to me. You know, I love them all. So I'm like, how the hell is this one? Maybe like, woo, like, you know, I think here's the answer. Okay, bird box gets picked up, comes out in 2014 and, and did like, what I thought was really fun and well in his first week, right? But by like New York Times bestseller standards or really even by any major publisher standards, it was probably a disappointment when it first came out in terms of sales. I'm sure that it, it would have been whatever. The point is the second week it was did about the same, the third week about the same, the fourth week the same until now we're talking a whole year of, of that. And then it became like, huh, wait, this is becoming interesting because Bird Box didn't sell like thousands of copies in his first two weeks and then sort of peter out or whatever. It's literally had this steadiness mm. to it for an entire year, um, the first week to, to the last week. And then that year became two years. And that year became three, those two became three and then four. And all of a sudden it was like kind of a strange thing that me and my agent would talk about regularly. Like, man, it's, it's still doing exactly like it did. It never, rose above a certain volume and it never went below a certain volume. It just stayed at this steady hum for like four years. And I can only, I attribute that to, you know, I see Bird Box on a lot of lists of like horror novels to read. And, um, and also I think that Bird Box could um, like 
it's one of those horror novels that can step outside of the genre a little. Like to me, it's squarely horror, but it can step outside. It could be, uh, hor- uh, Bird Box could go to a thriller party, you know? I can see Bird Box drinking with like a thriller. <laughs> <laughs> like it's gonna it's gonna go home to the horror house, but but it can go out for a night, you know? <laughs> but I think that like- Go one night pass. Yeah, yeah, it's a one night stand in the, you know, you know <laughs> doesn't spend much time in the romantic comedy side of town, but I'm sure that she'd be welcome there too. Um, so then I think that has something to do with it. It's a little bit outside the genre and it was a word of mouth and the horror scene like really propelled it. And for me, it was this incredible thing because I went to StokerCon in 2000. So the book wasn't out yet. I think it was, it was right before it came out in 2014. I never met anybody in the scene yet at all. I don't have a book out yet, but I had a box of 60 hard copies, hard covers of a bird box that I was supposed to sell. And I mean, that you can make some good money off that if you think about it, right? Uh, 10, to, between 10 and 20 for each of these and set up a table. And and I'm looking at all these like tables set up. I don't know a single person there. I'm like, oh, how am I gonna sell these, man? So I was like, you know what? Forget it, you just don't even think about the money. And I just stood up and put up a sign saying free hardcovers. And all these people would walk up and then I would all of a sudden talking to them about Bird Box and they write books too. And maybe they would give me one of theirs or whatever. And I met like 50, 60 people in like the horror world in that like hour that, and I, I always cite that as one of the best decisions I ever made. And, I, and I'm not saying to an author, like give yourself away for free. <laughs> it just seemed like in that moment, it was the right thing to do. And, and I always think that there was some sort of seed work that happened there because the, um, at the time, the head of the HWA, Rocky Wood, he was one of the people that got one and he posted about it being a great debut and that led to more people reading it. It just seemed like there was a steady flow to it. And then now couple, couple that with the fact that there were announcements along the way, right? Netflix bought Universal Option Bird Box before it came out. Netflix bought the rights to Bird Box from Universal. That's an announcement. Sandra Bullock gets on board six months later, or whatever. That's an announcement. Sarah Paulson's on board. John Malkovich, like, um, it's directed by Suzanne Beer, who did this. So there was like regular things to talk about mm-hmm. in the course between from book to film. It wasn't like the book is uh, made and a month later there's a movie and now what do we talk about? It, there was this steady flow of like exciting advancements on the movie side. And then the movie thing happened, and that was just, I mean, that's a whole hour long conversation in and of itself. And at that point, that's just set up for Mallory to come out. So I think that the the answer to your question, how do you maintain that is steady word of mouth, things to talk about, and that Bird Box maybe, maybe not transcends, but steps out of the genre a little bit too. We are unfortunately getting very close to time, but I do have one main question before we go into a couple of Patreon questions. And uh, that question is the same one that I ask every guest that comes on the show, which is why do you, Josh Malaman, write? Now, Jonathan Jantz had a very good answer, so hopefully you can top it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like, it's such a thrill. It's so, I don't want to use the word fun because it's so much more than just fun. Um, it's such a thrill. It's, it's, I don't, I don't know. I, I had one time where, um, a, you know, where I was like drinking a lot with a bunch of drinking buddies one time I asked, but anyway, they were in the middle of a real <laughs> run. I was in the middle of a real run for there. And then, and then I, there was a bar we all hung out at and, the, and this girl 
showed up um, in the middle of the day to literally came to talk to me about maybe, and I was like 30 something at the time, that maybe I needed a plan B. And she's like, listen, like you're having the time of your life. You know, you're writing the, God, I see online that you've written like 10 books or whatever it was before Bird Box gets picked up and all that. And I'm like, and she's like, I think, I think you need a plan B. I mean, at some point you have to think like you're bro one of the brokest people I've ever met. Like, what are you going to do? And the question was so bizarre to me, man, that I, it wasn't like, I didn't even get upset about it. It was so weird to me. It sounded like she could have been asking me like, you're like, you know, I think that you need a third foot or, or, <laughs> or I borrow one of your eyes, you know? I was like, I literally didn't understand what she meant. What do you mean like plan B? Like, this is, this is what I do. This is like, that. I'm gonna write another one and another one, another one. And then Bird Box got picked up. And I, I can say with absolute certainty that if without HarperCollins, Del, uh, Del Rey, the movie, all that, I would be at 33 books now still. I was doing about two a year before all this happened and I'm still at about two a year since then, since it's happened. So why do you write? I mean, I, it's, there's no intentional, I'm going to say this, but it's like, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's the most thrilling, joyous. It's like the place that I have the, I have the most, it's the most colorful place that I go to. Fantastic, beautifully put. Uh, we're gonna just ask, I think we've got time for one question from our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash great writers share. And I'm going to go with Faye Trask, who says, how much say did you have when it came to turning Bird Box into a movie? Did you get to do anything neat, like meet the actors or visit the set? Oh, yeah. So, okay, in terms of say, none. And and and, and that, think about it. Bird Box was optioned before it came out. It's my first book. So talk about no leverage. I mean, I literally had nothing out in the world yet. Um, so we happily, joyfully said, take it away and do whatever you want with it. That said... We were welcome. I was welcome um, into like the first initial conversations with who the screenwriter was going to be. Um, we, I was, I flew out to LA and went onto the set to meet the producers and they showed me storyboards. Um, they would give us like updates and we were welcome on set. And um, we, Allison and I, you know, watched a, a scene shot out in the woods. And then we watched the majority of the, or a, a large chunk of the day was in like a sound studio, like on the Warner Brothers lot, like just so you, like you'd see in the movie, like where Pee Wee was riding his bike around, you know, that kind of stuff. And like, we're in one of those studios watching the scene where the car flips, you know? Mm. So Sandra Bullock and Sarah Paulson are like in the car, like, and then they, you know, it comes back and then it comes back and it comes back. It's all in this like, oops, this like contraption, this machine. And at the end of that um, day, Okay, real fast. So where they filmed, was like, <laughs> where they filmed was all like lit up, you know, and and it was all like sort of shadows beyond that. And at the end of the day, we were there for hours. The one of the main producers was like, "Hey, Josh, I want, I want you to meet someone." And I'm like, "Oh shit, I'm about to meet Sandra Bullock." I'm like so nervous, you know. And he like led me through a bunch of people and walked me out under those lights. And everyone else, more or less, you know, sort of like was back in the shadowy area. And I was like meeting her under the bright lights of a stage and she's like a full makeup and costume for the role and i'm like oh. mallory i'm like what is going on right now i'm meeting sandra bullock like 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 she has her own spotlight or something mm -hmm. you know like yeah it was an amazing moment and then we were invited to the la premiere um and this was actually kind of a big moment for me because the la premiere well that, that was a huge moment for me but the la premiere was in the contract actually like josh gets to go to the premiere right 
And then Allison and I had the time of our lives that night. Oh my God, just even thinking about it now. And then after that, they invited us to the New York one and that one wasn't in the contract. And it really meant something to me. I was like, oh my God, they're like, we added to that party. Well, which we do. Allison and I definitely are adders. But like, <laughs> but I was like, we're definitely not subtractors. And I was like, we added to that, you know, to their party and they liked us and they went. So that was a huge sort of moment. So did I have any say? No, I also didn't care about that. In the same way with my band, I'm the songwriter. I bring a song. I don't tell Derek what's play. I wrote the song Bird Box and let, they just played it however they wanted. Great, done. Amazing, I love that. Okay, so we're gonna go into a quick fire round now, which is 10 questions I'm gonna throw at you as quickly as possible. At any point, feel free to pass. Otherwise, just go with whatever answer comes first. And uh, if you're happy, I'll see you on the other side. Okay. Okay. Bram Stoker or Mary Shelley? Say, oh, wait, say it again. Bram Stoker or Mary Shelley? Oh, man, 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 man. Mary Shelley. What's your go-to breakfast? Uh, eggs. If you could sentence one person to live in their own personal quarantine for the next year just to free the rest of the world, who would it be? I mean, alternatively, that... or go on, sorry. Say, say it again. I was going to say, alternatively, if you don't want to answer that, would you live in your own personal quarantine for one year just to free the rest of the world? <laughs> I think the answer to this one is too obvious. <laughs> and there's a very, I, I do have someone in mind that should go in quarantine for a year, or maybe 50. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go and play. Uh, the Beatles or The Who? Oh, man, The Who. Who's your go-to author to get you out of a writing funk? Recently, it was Philip Roth. What one musician, living or dead, would you invite into your hot tub? <laughs> no, but it sounds really weird. But I feel like my answer is Neil Young, but that sounds like the weirdest person. But I have so many questions for him about his songwriting, I guess Neil Young. <laughs> this is the best situation to answer those questions, just weirdly naked in a hot tub. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> if a random fire destroyed all of your work and you were only able to save one story, which story would you save? Oh, Oh my God. Ooh, that's the scariest question I've ever been asked mm. in my life. One story. Oh boy. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a novel called Pest. What's your party trick? My party trick? Mm. Um, I can drink this drink in half. <laughs> <laughs> What's one Christmas present you wished you got, but you never received? Um, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, well, no, I did get that. Uh, I was about to say that I wanted the um, Constructicons. Um, I would like, uh, uh, man, I pass. That's a stumper. Uh, yeah. If you could have one sentence, word, or phrase published on a billboard and viewed by millions, what would it say? Um, that is a really, man, these, this is not rapid fire stuff anymore. Now, now we've been like really good questions. Um, something to the effect of um, get rid of the words good or bad. I love it. And that is 10 questions. One bonus that question. That was one bonus question. Where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you're working on? Uh, everything is just uh, Josh Mallerman. So on Instagram, and there's only one L in Mallerman, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and also joshmallerman.com used to sort of be not that exciting necessarily just updates but now there's a free novel up there that i wrote live uh in front of people during the beginning of this 
pandemic. Um, Carpenter's Farm is up there in its entirety. And one of my favorite things about that, there are no view numbers, reviews. Well, there are, might be reviews on Goodreads or something. No view numbers, no likes, no dislikes, no comments. It's literally just the book and chapters up there. And, and there's something very pure about that to me. Absolutely love that. So yeah, if you're listening, absolutely check out anything that Josh has worked on. You'll be doing yourself a favor. And Josh, thank you so much for donating some of your time and coming onto the show. It's been a genuine pleasure. Yeah, same. That was incredible. Now, now all I'm thinking about is that Christmas present, even though I'm Jewish, by the way. Then maybe that's why I passed. <laughs> there you go. I never, I never really had that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do think of anything, throw it over and I'll pop it in the show notes. But okay. for now, thanks again for joining me. And thank you everyone for listening. And I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, Holly will be joined by author of fantasies, mashups, and mayhem, Alicia Escobar. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare. Until next time.